Great. Welcome back, everybody. We'll start with a couple questions for the uh, afternoon uh, folks. Um, and uh, maybe we'll, um, we'll kind of kick it off with um, a little uh, Mike, Mike, as you kick it off, uh, you want to just uh, uh, introduce our one new panel member? Because I think they probably uh, need to be sure. introduced to uh, yeah, Monica so, Klein. Uh, as, um, Marina Klein is joining us. She's a physician researcher out of Montreal, Canada, McGill and uh, has done an awful lot of work on HIV antiretroviral therapy and treatment of patients, but now has uh, sort of also shifted into PrEP like a lot of us have. And so welcome. And, and you can bring the perspective of uh, you along with uh, Jean-Michel to a healthcare system that is not quite as convoluted as what Dr. Crowley just had to cover. <laughs> so <laughs> so there, there we go. Um, first question, Susan's for you. Uh, the CDC HRSA focuses on hotspots um, and that makes sense, but has an unintended consequence of reducing funding opportunities for areas that are assumed to have lower incidence. And so uh, your thoughts about how that can be evened out a little bit. That was from Adam Spivak in Salt Lake City. Yeah, I think that's a real, uh, a, a real issue, even though these uh, 48 jurisdictions and the seven states have account for about half of the new uh, infections, we still have infections happening in the rest of the country. And so we really do need to advocate for CDC to expand um, their ending the epidemic uh, approaches to include these other areas, uh, because it does have this unintended consequence of actually uh, there's still about half of the new infections that are occurring outside of those areas. And even though they wanted to really prove that you could uh, focus in on those populations and really try to um, uh, turn the curve, um, we do need to expand beyond that. Yeah. And, and Monica, Adam had a follow-up question on just a question about pharmacist-led PrEP efforts to try to expand us, get us out of, I mean, Jean-Michel said that they're doing most of their PrEP activity out of a hospital. And is that a way that we might be able to move to expand the reach? Yes, there is a actually California law that was um, sponsored by Scott uh, Wiener, who's a really incredible champion for PrEP here in the state to have pharmacy-led PrEP um, administration. So we, for example, I think, uh, Dr. Buckleiner talked about Mission Wellness as actually a specific pharmacy that um, that uh, you, they keep track of your prescriptions. They'll call you. It's time to come in to get it. We'll I'll deliver it to you. Um, we'll do monitoring. So uh, time to go and get your monitoring. Like it is absolutely almost completely pharmacy led, and we are hoping for this kind of dream of the I am Captegravir. Also, I mean, pharmacists can can administer intramuscular medications, and I think one way to expand it is. There's going to be a program someday where we can self-administer, hopefully, if, 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 if people can be trained. That's a little harder, um, but we're, we're thinking about it. And then pharmacy-led uh, intramuscular habitat. Great. Um, and then, Jeff, uh, I'm going to combine a bunch of questions here into one, and that is a little bit of clarification that Medicare Part D, will that cover PrEP? And is that sort of an active thing? And similarly, um, did you say that the ACA will pay 340B for PrEP, not to Ryan White clinics necessarily for that, but to other clinics that do STI and other type of work? Yeah, so Medicare um, is, is not um, covered by the USPSTF recommendation, but Medicare 
um, offers uh, prescription drug coverage through Medicare Part D. So people that med have Medicare Part D, that, that, that program covers PrEP. Um, there's a special protection for six classes of Medicare drugs, including antiretrovirals, that all Medicare Part D plans must cover all or substantially all drugs in the class. So all the medications must be covered. So, uh, and the, the labs and other things are covered under other parts of Medicare. So the services are covered, but there is cost sharing in Medicare Part D. So if you're a PrEP user in Medicare, you'll have to pay cost sharing like, like other drugs, but, but PrEP will be covered. Now, it looks like a, a question or keep going? No, no, keep going. No. And so then the, the question is um, 340B clinics, these other ones, uh, other than those that just get Ryan White funded, can use their prep, their, excuse me, their 340B program income for prep services. Yep, yes, they can do that. Now, the ACA question is so people have insurance coverage through the ACA. And in some ways, that, that, that's less relevant. So if, if people with their insurance are allowed to go someplace, and they're allowed to use a 340B pharmacy, that pharmacy can get reimbursed at the regular rate that they would, they would pay anybody else. And, and they'd purchase a drug and that, that spread, that program income, they can use. So it's the fact that they have insurance. Now, ACA insurance might limit where you're able to fill your prescriptions, but that, that's not really um, a major issue. Um, if you have private insurance, um, yes, if you go to a 340B pharmacy, they can generate program income from it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's clear when well, I think we all hear you say this, but wow, is it hard to keep straight? I think I might end up uh, signing up for the French or the Canadian uh, programs here. It might be a little easier. But thank that's that's why we have you because it is complicated. But you did a great job of making it clear. Um, and I see Dr. Landovitz has joined and uh, he's got his headphones on to help direct air traffic control at LAX. That's great. Welcome back. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Perfect. Henry. Uh, whenever I see a question uh, from, um, uh, from Amanda Cassell, uh, uh, we have to respond to that since she's the leader in the DC effort, but she wants to know when the CDC prep guidelines are going to be revised. Does anybody uh, have any inside information about that? I, I know that they were out for public comment and then went back in. The last time I spoke to Dawn Smith, she assured me that they were imminent, but I don't have a more specific timeline. All right, here, here's a specific question uh, uh, about uh, PrEP and DEXA scans. Uh, and uh, uh, I guess uh, maybe somebody could comment on how often they use uh, DEXA scans and whether there are any legal implications uh, uh, for long-term PrEP and complications uh, like uh, bone complications. Anybody want to take that on? I might take a shot at that first. And, you know, I think that the use of DEXA in otherwise healthy 25 and 30 year old folks, especially men, I'm not sure what that means um, because DEXA is really meant to detect osteoporosis in older populations. That's how it's normalized. And so if you see a one or 2% change in somebody who's 25, especially if they're men, I don't know what that means. Does anybody have any sense that that's evil, Sean Michelle? Do you have any ideas on that? 
Well, we actually, we don't do bones, I mean, bone scans at all uh, in people on PrEP. Um, and, you know, according to the data from, you know, there are a lot of data from, you know, a number of uh, studies, especially among MSM, where you could see that the, you know, the, the decline in bone mineral density actually levels off after 24 weeks, 48 weeks. So mm -hmm. it, it's the, the, the first 24 weeks when you see a decline. And if you stop PrEP, then it rebounds to you know, most participants at the baseline level. So the, the real, you know, I, I don't think that there is a, an issue here, except potentially in older uh, people who have, you know, um, additional cofactors for osteoporosis or osteopenia. Uh, other than that, I would not do a, a bone scan uh, in uh, people on yeah. PrEP. Uh, Marina, what, what are you... Yeah. Marina, what are your thoughts there? What do you do in Canada? Yeah. You... yeah, no, I agree entirely with Jean-Michel. Um, we're not doing it routinely for certainly not for younger individuals um, unless uh, there's some particular risk factor. Uh, yeah. Right. And I, then... I think the one, Mike, the, the one thing just to keep in mind is, well, Jean-Michel is, of course, 100% right that there's return to baseline bone mineral density six months after stopping PrEP. The one population in whom that doesn't seem to be true are youth and adolescents who are still accruing bone mass. Mm. And we, we know even less about what that means or how to interpret DEXA data in that population. But it is that population in particular, I think there are some unanswered questions about impacts on long-term skeletal integrity. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and Jeff Kirchner uh, wrote to us on the chat to everybody and said that, uh, uh, that Don Smith a couple of weeks ago said that she thought that um, end of the uh, month or first part of December, a couple of weeks, it'll be out, the CDC guidance. Henry? Uh, Susan mentioned some innovative uh, approaches to uh, uh, getting PrEP out in the community, but Marie, do you want to talk, first of all, in Canada? Uh, uh, one of the questions suggested there were nurse-led uh, PrEP programs in the Department of Public Health. Uh, maybe you can answer that. And then one of the questions starts as, what are the top three things that Susan would like to see implemented in the United States that haven't been implemented? So she can think about that while you answer. Great. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I think the, the thing is, you know, despite our having a much less complex um, reimbursement system in terms of drugs, we still have a big implementation gap uh, in terms of PrEP in Canada. And so even though there's been sort of a sharp uptake in, in, in PrEP since uh, particularly the generics became available, they're still uh, only estimated to be about 10,000 people uh, receiving PrEP regularly in, in Canada and most recent estimates. So, so um, there have been some innovative uh, attempts to try to expand that. Uh, the nurse-led sort of care model that you're referring to is, I think, originated in Ontario uh, through some public health clinics where, um, uh, where STI screening takes place or STI diagnoses are being made. And at that point of contact, the nurse that, that you know, is because these are reportable infections, makes the contact with the person and then offers the possibility of being engaged in PrEP. Uh, and it's actually been quite successful as a model that's been evaluated in terms of engagement. Um, I think up to about 40 Five to 50% of people actually agree to kind of at least make that first attempt uh, and maybe 40% of them will attend a first visit. 
Um, and then the nurses continue to lead the kind of care and follow-up of those individuals. And uh, there's been several publications now about the acceptability uh, and uh, the uptake of it, which looks like a model that's now being more expanded within the province of Ontario. Uh, obviously, there's going to be jurisdictional uh, issues at uh, different provinces. And if nurses have the ability to do these as delegated acts, for example, it depends on, on the territory. But it really does look like a, a model that's of interest. And I might mention just another one, which I think is really taking off, especially during COVID, which is uh, the ability to get an online assessments for PrEP uh, through a consortium of doctors, nurses, and other practitioners who've put together you know, a really attractive website, which is educational, but you can actually sign in, do uh, a PrEP assessment tool online and get linked directly to a clinician in your province who can then get you onto prep and organize all the blood testing without ever having to see a physician in person or a person in person. And that's really has been really taking off. So I think it's another kind of innovative tool that's countrywide. Yeah, that, that sounds really great. Before we get to Susan, uh, we haven't asked uh, Hyman uh, his perspective on this, but uh, do you have anything you want to add in terms of uh, uh, things you'd like to see done uh, uh, to get more exposure to prep? No, I think those are all important components. And I think coming back down to sort of choice and what works for one person might not work for another and just giving people the options to um, access prep in ways that work best for them, uh, both for uptake, but also for persistence. We have this huge problem where people are not on prep for that long in their sort of times in which they might be at risk for acquiring HIV. And so we have to think about both starting people, but also helping them stay on prep. All right. Well, since somebody, Susan, wanted to put you on the spot, uh, what, what are the things you'd most likely uh, most like to see? Here? Well, I, I would love to see a nurse-based uh, program. There's absolutely no reason why it, there shouldn't be a nurse-based program for uh, prep, and yet that's not really uh, allowable um, other than nurse practitioner-based programs. Uh, in the U.S. So in the same way that we've got collaborative practice agreements with pharmacists, I would love to see that happen with nurses. I'd even take it a step further. And in Thailand, they're doing peer-based um, prep administration. And I think it would be really interesting to see if that could get around some of the, uh, the roadblocks that we have in reaching populations that have traditionally under, are traditionally underrepresented in prep. But I do think one of the things that um, is sort of most key is what Hyman talked about in his presentation, which is really moving away from risk-based discussions and risk-based screening and offering PrEP to everyone um, who's sexually active and really just describing it. So because you could see the knowledge levels among heterosexuals were exceedingly low um, and uh, getting PrEP out into syringe ex exchange programs or syringe uh, services um, programs uh, would also be really helpful. So I think we've got to really look at those populations we're missing and try to figure out what are some innovative programs we could use to specifically address those particular populations. And this express approach to monitoring has to, has to be, it just has to be a lot easier than what it currently is so that you could drop in at a laboratory or you could do home-based testing um, as your way of doing your annual screen, your quarterly screening, um, and then uh, only need to see a clinician uh, or whoever's leading that program once a year, uh, face, either face-to-face -face or telehealth um, for a check-in. Mm. So instead of all this focus recently on citizens arrest, we can focus on citizens assist and yes. let them help us with this. Yeah, that'd be yes. great. Um, 
Okay, so some more, uh, Jeff, there were a couple more folk uh, comments directed to you, and then I think we'll broaden it out because I think we're, we're, we're segueing right into the panel discussion here. But um, if, a, if insurance company isn't covering the prep in the labs and the cost shifting you've gone through, the PA process, et cetera, um, what steps do you take next? In other words, if you hit, keep hitting these roadblocks, what are the options? So oh, I, I glossed over this in the interest of time, but I did have a slide and I mentioned that providers can help. But, you know, your recourse varies depending on the type of insurance I had, you have. And, and I listed places you can go. You can also complain to the federal government. I Like off the top of my head, I can't tell you where it is right now, but it's it's in the slides that people can can, can reference for, for where to go to file a complaint. The other thing I would say is, you know, I, I, I said this guidance came out over the summer, became enforceable in September. So a lot of people may not understand um, that this um, that these requirements exist and that they're enforceable rights. So it may be you have to go back to the same plans that denied you before and say, do you know that you're breaking the law and you're facing an enforcement action unless you start covering this this prep free of charge? And that, that might work. But, you know, you don't have to do this alone. So um, the, the slide I give, if people can access it, should should give you some direction on where to go to file complaints. Great. Thank you. I'm sorry, Jeff, I saw you typing away as to how you can magically get uh, more uh, uh, PrEP access in states that have poor access. So what was your response to that? So what I said is I don't have the magic answer, but, you know, I think that, you know, the, the USPSTF recommendation really does matter. So I think we, we need to maximize it again, helping people understand they have enforceable rights. The health center money, you know, it's $150 million of new money. Health centers in all parts of the country. So, so you should, should leverage that. But I also said that, you know, we have seen some successes. So look at the local resources of the Southern AIDS Coalition. I look at, I mean, I don't know what uh, Mike's clinic is doing in Birmingham, but like my brother's keeper in Jackson, Mississippi, they're doing great things with PrEP. So like, what are the lessons they've learned? You know, yeah. um, I wish there was one simple answer where I could say, turn to this program and it sells it everywhere, but this, that's not our case. So it's, it's going to be a, a patchwork system we come up with, but there are things we can do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's important that we all sort of stay active. And th that is one of the challenges. Actually, it's one of the reasons for this whole webinar is uh, to help bring these things to light and having the perspective from other countries is helpful too. Um, so I think we can, uh, we'll keep incorporating the questions. I think they're more broad now. Um, and I don't know if we want to sort of break it down. Um, maybe we, I think we know who the populations are who are at risk. There are strategies that we heard described that talk about how you might focus on one or the other and how to overcome the disparities. Um, but assuming that, that that's all done, and we can come back to that, um, I'm wondering, um, and Hyman, I mean, this kind of goes back to you, but I'd like to hear from the others as well, is um, just that pattern of keeping people in care once you get them engaged, making sure that things are going. So what do you do, Hyman, I mean, when uh, you have somebody who's been on PrEP, they're supposed to come back for their visit, they don't show up? Do you have outreach? Is that Do you have some way of tracking that? What do you guys do? Yeah, so there's a, a variety of uh, strategies. So, and we do this a lot with sort of panel management with other diseases like diabetes, for example, uh, hypertension. So it's it's the same idea. And I think for our for our work with prevention, um, there's not always the same um, 
not always the same motivation for things to be sort of coalesced around getting people back in. So we use a panel management strategy. So somebody is due for their three month, they missed that visit. There's an outreach effort to uh, re-engage that person into care. Uh, we do the same thing with HIV. So we try to use those same lessons. Um, and one of the side benefit of that, I think, is one, you identify other things going on with our patients who things that we had no idea were happening. Two is that um, there's a sense that they're cared for. And so there's this connection that you have to somebody is worried, is, is wanting to know how you're doing to bring you back in. Um, and for a lot of our patients, particularly in the safety net, like that is their support network. And so that's been really, really helpful. With very large clinics, I think it's a little bit more challenging. So I think if you have three or 4,000 patients, um, if there's an automated system, if somebody misses a visit, um, to have some sort of type of outreach, but the benefits of it are, I think, significant. And then um, you can identify if somebody has stopped prep. Um, you know, we've had patients who've had their insurance change and that's actually what's happened. And so they actually have stopped prep because of that. So there's an opportunity to link them back into a place where they can get prep during that gap, or maybe they just didn't get the letter that they needed to send back, particularly for our younger patients. So there's a variety of things that come up with that outreach. Um, that yeah, I think needs to handle. And it seems like, at least in my mind, when I first started hearing about all this, I thought, well, we have these specialized locations for focusing on prep. And uh, then I thought more about it. And, you know, we're talking about people generally between, let's say, and there are younger people, but let's say 18 and 35, who most of them, at least that I see, um, don't have routine health care. I mean, at least not in the U.S. And so the prep is actually an entree into the health system, Right. Um, and so we could, is, are there services that you guys provide that say, oh, you, you've got a, uh, uh, you've got a gastroenteritis or your blood pressure's up. Can, can I get you referred or can I get that taken care of? How many of you, how many of you guys are doing that type of thing in a more comprehensive way of providing service beyond PrEP? Mike, I think a lot of what we end up doing is incidental finding that is part of the prep process or the interview process to start prep ends up coming out in the wash. So it's almost um, collateral benefit, not collateral harm of yeah. engaging with the healthcare system. Um, I do think the thing that tends to bring people in for routine care in that age group is STD testing. Um, so, you know, that's what you advertise, um, but you plan to provide as much as you're able to, to wrap around, but that's the draw, at least we have found. Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the major issues is that there's a number of really uh, great clinics and practices that have made prep like a priority for their populations. And they're often centered in areas where there's the populations that they serve are, are, are close by. And those, they have many mechanisms to kind of keep people in care and engaged. But what we're really missing is the larger group out there that don't have necessarily easy access to those or don't even see themselves as being at risk. And, and there was really a, like a lovely um, study just recently published uh, that looked at the three big urban centers in Canada. And, and the awareness about PrEP is really high in, in the gay and bisexual men who sex men population, but, but most of them didn't feel that they actually needed PrEP. Uh, but if you've applied 
that, you know, the clinical criteria for PrEP, over 50% of them would have qualified for PrEP. So, so, so there's this disconnect sometimes between, you know, it's out there, it's for the other, and it's not for me necessarily. And how do we, you know, bridge that gap and then make it easy uh, to uh, access, especially in communities that may not be so well served uh, because they're not in big urban areas. So I think there's a lot of implementation challenges that despite, you know, it being there and, and accessible, it makes it not so accessible. Right. So I have to, unfortunately, I hit up against something that was popped up at the last minute. I want to thank everybody. Dr. Mazur and the panel will continue, uh, but thank you all for joining in. And um, uh, I think this hit every mark that I was hoping for with it and uh, look forward to hearing the feedback uh, on the, uh, after the panel's over. Thank you. Great. Mike, thanks for organizing uh, so much of this. So let's go on to a couple more, uh, a few more questions uh, here. Um, uh, Amanda Costell has come back and wants to know what the panel suggests about prep uptake for adolescents in the 13 to 24 year old. Uh, uh, and maybe uh, uh, again, uh, we can start, uh, I don't know who we should start with. Uh, uh, Marina, why don't you tell us in Canada what you're doing about adolescents? Again, I think this is a really uh, underserved population so far. We we actually recently had a good discussion about this in the Canadian HIV Trials Network, and and um, you know the pediatric groups are really trying to find ways to uh, bring it in, but there's so much challenges in terms of stigma uh, around even just sexual activity in that group and a disclosure with with their parents. And and fortunately, in, in Quebec at least, where I'm based. Um, sort of the age of consent for any medical intervention is quite low, it's 14 years old. And so that means that they do not need their parents' um, approval to uh, get birth control or, or PrEP. So, so that actually has facilitated uh, access to it, uh, but then it's really much in specialized centers. And I think again, we may be missing uh, a lot of teens that could, could access it still. And they don't have really well-defined projects for it going on as to my knowledge at the moment. Let, let's see what the other panel members, uh, Hyman, you want to make any comment about that or uh, you're welcome to defer to uh, somebody else uh, depending on your experience? Yeah, so I, I think one of the things that we've seen is one, it's uh, supporting providers so that they feel comfortable and knowledgeable to be able to provide PrEP um, and then uh, really addressing some of the access issues. So uh, I volunteered at a, uh, a clinic in Berkeley and it's sort of a gay uh, bisexual male sort of clinic and almost all the volunteers were out to their friends and family and almost none were out to their family members. Um, and so it just sort of gives a context of the complexity with younger people and the cost associated if Truvada shows up on an explanation of benefits to your parents and they know you're gay, but they might not know you're having sex. And so it raises all these concerns. So really addressing that and um, having some aggressive policies. So in San Francisco, we just bought Truvada and gave it to young people so that we could get around that issue, but really identifying where the gaps are to try to address them because they are going to be different for younger people um, in the U.S. for sure. Well, before we go to uh, Southern California, Susan, you want to say anything more about San Francisco? No, I think uh, what Hyman described is actually really important. I think the other thing is that pediatricians are uh, trained, I think, to start at a certain age to get kids' parents out of the room 
and to discuss a variety of topics, including sexual practices, but we haven't really trained pediatricians to uh, administer PrEP. And we need to do that um, because that is a place where teens, adolescents do sometimes go to their pediatrician for their annual visits. And it would be a way to actually at least educate that population about PrEP. Yeah, uh, Rafi, want to uh, add to that? Yeah, I, I think it's something that we don't know how to. Um, I, we don't know all the all the right answers, but we need to start somewhere. And um, it, you know, I know the Adolescent <laughs> Trials Network that did the um, uh, registrational work that actually supported TDF FTC's um, expansion of its original approval down to. Um, uh, allow younger and lighter weight um, individuals to get TDF FTC prep um, noted that um, uh, engagement is challenging the additional wraparound support services when you're working in that population are 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 really significant that the retention and adherence challenges are amplified even compared to what we're seeing um, in young adults. Um, and older adults uh, on PrEP. So it's, it's actually um, a, an amplification um, of the challenges of, of scaling up PrEP in adults. And I think we need people who are really committed to figuring this out um, so we can do better. I am hopeful that as we get injectable or longer acting agents, um, that youth and and young adults will be a population who will benefit disproportionately from access to those options that require less of a daily inter intervention, but it's still gonna require the conversation, the access, the wraparound services. And, and I think working with pediatric uh, specialists and adolescent specialists where you know brain development is not necessarily always in the same place as um, uh, 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 chronologic age or or sexual development age, it makes it really challenging. So we need we need people who work closely in these populations to help us figure this out. Yeah, there are a number of questions about uninsured patients and the difficulty of getting them referred out and the interval at which they're at risk before they get referred to another center. Uh, does anybody want to make any comments about how to provide services for these uh, patients uh, while they're looking for a home? Uh, Canada is not an issue, but uh, Jeff, you wanna say something about that? I don't think there are any perfect solutions. We do have programs that can serve people that are uninsured and including um, you know, undocumented immigrants and people that otherwise are ineligible, including the health centers. I think that, um, People need to um, just look at the community resources and, and, and look for places. I, I don't know. I can say in the whole country, always go here. But like if you were in Washington, D.C., I would, you know, could refer you to specific places that might be able to help you find the local resources. So you just have to do that in your own community. I mean, the other thing is we need to get every state to expand Medicaid because the more states that do that, there's just more community resources to um, assist these other people that still fall through the cracks and remain uninsured. But Jeff, this really is the, the challenge, right? You, you need to know your local geography, your local services, who is going to be friendly and culturally appropriate to the population, who's going to be geographically appropriate, 
and and it's not a wise one size fits all. It's very fractured in the U.S. and and it's it's so hard to give generalizations outside of sort of where you work. And one exactly. thing I, I would add is um, I think if a patient is talking to you about prep, they probably are comfortable with you as a clinical site and that there's actually a lot of data, particularly in New York, that referring out a lot of those individuals just never get on prep. And so I think, uh, again, getting back to the barriers and if somebody is having an engaged conversation with you or with your team about prep and uh, thinking about it, are there strategies or ways that it can be integrated so that uh, people don't have to go to another place. Switching topics a little more, there are a couple of questions about how often you do HIV testing. There are patients who are on and off PrEP. There are people who switch from one PrEP uh, uh, approach to another. I'm not sure there's a good uh, one-size-fits-all answer, but uh, uh, just to pick on somebody, Hyman, to start with you, what's your general philosophy about uh, uh, HIV testing, just to as often as common sense would tell you? Yeah, I do it uh, every quarter. So um, that's generally what I tell my patients. Like, we're going to start at PrEP, and you might go on and off it, but if you're sexually active, just come in every three months for testing. We'll do HIV and STI testing. Um, if you're off it for a while, like more than a month, and want to restart and have had some exposures, you know, you can come in for uh, additional testing. Um, and so just try to make it as easy as possible. But for every quarter, just to keep it like simple and in line with our local guidelines uh, for testing. Is that what the rest of you do to it uh, every quarter? Yeah, I, th it, I think it's very easy. It's very easy for people to conceptualize in that way. It's seasonal, right? It's a new season. It's time to get tested. Um, and that makes it more acceptable. And that way you don't have to get into enormous complexity if someone's on, if they're off, if they're using two-on-one, if they're using daily, that's just the, the pattern of testing. Of course, as Hyman said, you know, if, if you have something more provocative that's making you concerned, there's nothing with doing additional testing. But having that as your standard, I think, makes a lot of sense from a number of perspectives. Hey, here's actually an intriguing question for Susan to uh, maybe tip her hand about what the San Francisco Department of Health is going to but you think the, when we see the data from 2021, uh, the data will look better or worse in terms of uh, new cases and uptake of things like PrEP? You know, one of the challenges that we have is that we saw a dramatic decline in HIV testing. And so while we saw, for instance, a decline in new diagnoses by 22% um, from 20. 19 to 2020, we don't know that we can actually trust those numbers because we don't know if we're missing people because there was less testing going on. So while the, the uh, HIV testing has gone back up to baseline pre-COVID levels in clinical settings, in our community-based organizations, it still hasn't rebounded all the way. So I, you know, my hope is that we'll continue to see a decline but I think we're going to have done some backsliding because a number of people did go off of PrEP during the COVID pandemic. And sometimes that was because they were no longer having sex, but sometimes it was because they didn't want to go into the clinic um, or the clinic wasn't open or, um, or there were other access related issues. Yeah, well, that's an important issue about the quality of the data. Uh, yes. But um, uh, Maria, do you want to say anything about, uh, uh, is Canada any different in those terms? 
No, I think we experienced pretty much the same thing. There's a lot of closures, obviously, around the shutdowns in various provinces. And, and although we did start to see quite a rise in some STIs, and particularly syphilis, over the last um, six months to a year, which does suggest that, that despite, you know, uh, the, the measures that were in place, people were still having sex. So, so we do anticipate that there may be a sort of lag phase and a, and a rise uh, that kind of catch up, unfortunately, in new HIV infections that will follow that. But we haven't seen the data for that yet. Yeah. Maybe one, go ahead, Jeff. I just wanted to jump in and comment. Like, I think um, what said, like COVID could really be a setback, but I also think we, we're almost creating this perception that we know it was horrible without having the data. So I just think we, we need to temper how we talk about this. You know, I've heard that viral suppression is up in the Ryan White program. So I just think we, before we like communicate too broadly how badly things were because of COVID, we need to wait for some of the data to come in. I think that's a good point. You know, this is also an opportunity for the panel members ask each other questions. Does anybody, do any of you want to direct a question uh, to uh, one of your fellow panel members and uh, uh, see what you can elicit from them? I was just going to make a comment. Oh, sorry, I didn't want to jump in. No, just go ahead, Marina. To follow up on the whole COVID situation, though, I think it also showed us a lot of opportunities that that we ought to be trying to look to uh, to to build upon. And you know, I mentioned already that the online uh, sort of programming, but the fact that we can do a lot more without having to have physically see a provider and uh, has really taught us that we can probably facilitate for many people who either feel awkward coming to the clinic or uh, have other constraints uh, to facilitate PrEP in, in many innovative ways. And I think we really have seen that with other aspects of, of healthcare. And I, and I think this is an opportunity to rethink uh, our structures and our programs uh, with respect to PrEP. Uh, Jeff, what do you think is going to happen in terms of reimbursement for telemedicine? Because I think, you know, all of us can see the power of that. We're dealing with some of the regulatory issues, some of the electronic issues, but where do you see that going uh, from your policy perspective? So it's funny you ask me that. The, the short answer is I don't know. I actually um, am working on a paper on that topic. I did some things for a CDC's STD division. And um, I think we can all recognize that we had an emergency response and we need to move to something that's more sustainable. Um, I think a lot of people want some of the emergency policies to continue, but I don't think there's clarity which ones. You know, we waive some HIPAA requirements. Should we waive them all going forward? Um, I know most providers believe strongly that parity was critically important, and it probably is in the short term, but is parity of reimbursement for in-person and uh, telehealth services something that can be sustained over time? So I don't think we know where. Um, I think, um, like, in the context of STIs, I think we need to, to also figure out how to reimburse for a higher volume of services taking into account that public health conditions might vary if, if we're having in-person telehealth services, and we don't know how to do any of this. When we tried to shift to uh, different reimbursement models for like behavioral health, it's been a disaster. So um, I don't know where we're going, but I think we're all gonna have to stay engaged because you know, if the reimbursement's inadequate, we'll see a lot of harmful outcomes, so. Yeah, Maria, you wanna uh, comment on that from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I know here they kept uh, parity for visits uh, all the way through, and we're expecting it's going to change uh, in the new year. Uh, that they'll, they'll, they're, as there's a push to get people back in-person visits. Uh, that said, um, I think there's going to be a long-standing. Uh, I think it's 
going to become entrenched at certain levels for certain types of services and and especially these sorts of ones that don't require you know physical examination or really in-person uh, visits so just, we're looking for some sort of hybrid model which is pretty much like the return to work is currently <laughs> in our country and anyway yeah that's good uh, susan there's a question about how we get public health departments to focus less on episodic care and more on long-term care including prep you want to make any comment about that Oh boy. Um, well, I think that uh, if you can look at the potential impact of PrEP, that's where some of these models can potentially be useful. You can see how much you can drive down uh, infection rates through PrEP, through something like PrEP, that you don't get from just episodic, uh, certainly counseling, as, as uh, I think it was Hyman pointed out, um, but uh, other sort of episodic kinds of approaches. I think PEP has its place but PrEP really uh, has the power to actually move things. So, you know, to the extent that you can, what we did in San Francisco was built this multi-sector consortium that I think has a lot of power because we've got over 300 members and um, we incorporate people from the health department, from the universities, from uh, Kaiser, from community-based organizations, activists, people, uh, clinicians of all different sorts, um, all coming together. And, you know, if you can then uh, cr try to create some consensus around what kinds of programmatic things need to happen and then advocate for those at a city level, we've been quite successful in doing that. Um, so I think that's, uh, you know, it, but it does take sort of both some thought and then some massive people, I think, to, uh, to really move that forward. Um. Rafi, anything from the Los Angeles perspective on that? No, um, you know, Los Angeles is challenged um, by enormous geography and siloing of communities that just makes any centralization of, of public health services especially challenging. You know, we don't have sort of an urban center that lends itself well to centralized services. So this notion of ongoing support for remote or telehealth services, even as things come back to a push to in-person, I think is really critical to success in our geography. And I suspect it might be a microcosm of what is true in more rural settings as well, where there aren't um, services that are easily accessible to communities um, that are widely dispersed. All right, again, I uh, offer one more opportunity for the panel members to ask each other a question. Henry, there was one question that I saw come through um, about from from one of the uh, attendees of the conference about what people do, um, you know, uh, when someone is in uh, a, a monogamous relationship with someone who's living with HIV and they're on treatment and undetectable. And we all believe, of course, U equals U. Um, and the uh, person who's HIV negative in the relationship, um, despite ostensibly having an understanding of those principles of U equals U still wants to go on PrEP. Um, and I'd love to hear how others approach this. We've been sort of sort of talking about this since sort of PrEP sort of began to be scaled up in the early 2010s. My, my approach is that if someone understands the principles of U equals U um, and they still wanna go on PrEP, um, I suspect that there's something that they're, that they're doing that is putting them at risk that they're not comfortable sharing with me. 
um, whether it's an extra diagonal partnership or additional behaviors or something. Um, so I'm, I've increasingly moved away from a position where um, there are a lot of cases where I would refuse to give someone prep who after a conversation and they're able to understand how it should be used and what risks are or are not, um, and they still want it. I'd, I'd love to hear how others approach it because it is, it, is, it is predicated on being able to have a nuanced conference about uh, conversation about sexual behaviors and, and the data. Well, that's actually a very important point about what the patient's not telling you. Uh, does anybody want to pick up on that theme? I mean, I, mean, I think that that's obviously uh, uh, a good point. Yeah, I so, think yeah, I've had situations, I mean, situations very similar to that. And, and, and sometimes it's not only ex, perhaps other relationships outside the partnership, but, but within the partnership, if the one, the person isn't necessarily 100% adherent and they, they're, they're worried that, that there's going to be gaps in, in you know, the you part which uh, you know we only measure periodically. Uh, I've got I've got uh, you know heterosexual partners that are serodiscordant and and are uh, are on prep uh, for that reason because there's been instances in the past where the person has just stopped taking their meds for for a month or so. So I, I think I agree with with Ravi that 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 the discussion has to be had and, and and people are intelligent and and can enter into that discussion and if they really wish to have prep then there's no reason to withhold it. There's a, there's obviously a reason behind it. Yeah, I, I sort of take the same approach. I, I sort of start, I lead with a yes, like yes, yes, we'll offer you prep and want to make sure you understand what U equals U is. And that does no way impact the, my ability or desire to offer you prep. Because I do think that there are a variety of things that you, they might know that they're not sharing with you um, about their partner, about activities and other things that might be going on. Um, and in my, one of my favorite questions is like, what type of monogamy is this? Is this emotional monogamy, sexual monogamy, you know, other types of monogamy and how people define things. Um, just an opportunity to engage in our, with our patients around that discussion. But I, I usually lead with a yes, because, you know, somebody's asking for prep, you know, and they have no contraindication, they're going to get it. Sorry, Henry. Hyman, could you say a little bit more about that? Because I thought I had heard everything. Um, you know, I, I've said to people, you know, monogamous is only monogamous until one partner learns it's not monogamous. You know, that's sort of everyone's nightmare situation. And I've heard of the term monogamish, but I've not heard this distinction that you're making that I think is really, it, it's striking a chord with me. Could you talk a little more about how you approach this idea of emotional monogamy versus, sec, you know, physical monogamy with, with, with patients? Um, so the way that and a, a patient actually taught me this, the way I talk about it is like um, guest stars. So are there any guest stars in your relationship? And that is somebody who might come in once or come in and out more than one time uh, into the relationship. And then, you know, whereas when you just when you when I ask about monogamy, I actually don't use the term monogamy. Um, I sort of ask about in sort of this guest stars uh, type of way, but it sort of gets that. Yeah, this is my partner and I don't fall in love with anyone else, you know, that is part of our relationship, but there might be physical things that happen outside of the relationship, either when, uh, whatever the rules are that they may have had spoken or unspoken. 
Um, and that there is often there's often a distinction about the connectivity and that connection and the way that people uh, with their partners have different levels of emotional connection. Um, and that sort of for some people is monogamy. They have a, 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 a monogamous emotional relationship, even if it's not uh, a monogamous physical. Actually, you know, there are a lot of interesting concepts that we're uh, getting out of this uh, symposium today. Uh, Jeff, I know that you're typing the answers. Do you think there's any chance that uh, in the U.S. we're going to support nurse or pharmacy-based uh, uh, prep services? I, I don't know what it means to say support. I think people are looking for um, innovative models. And I think if we learn more and saw more research about how effective they are, that could lead to the adoption. I think when people ask these questions, it's almost like we're going to think we're going to get an edict that, you know, these programs are suddenly going to require the adoption. That's not how our system works. You know, we have a federal system. So like in Medicaid, we don't we, we pay claims. We don't tell states what to do. We give grantees lots of leeway. So I think we can lead people to innovative approaches. Um, and I think um, that that's how we make change. But I don't know that there's a way like we're going to necessarily adopt some sort of like nationwide approach to, to use nurses and pharmacists. But am I understanding the question correctly? Well, um, I guess you can see what kind of response you get back when you type that. Um, right. let, let's actually maybe end this symposium with a particularly difficult issue, and that is how do you get patients to uh, inject drugs into the PrEP uh, continuum? And uh, I suspect that in Canada, they've solved this problem. So Marina, why don't you start? I only wish that were true. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so it's obviously long been recognized as an important uh, group of people for whom we need to develop strategies. And I think one of the places I've most had experience with is uh, in Saskatchewan, uh, where there's a large uh, growing outbreak of, of both HIV and hepatitis C, particularly among indigenous peoples who, who inject drugs. And, and they're really trying, the most success we've had is with the partners of people who've recently been diagnosed to approach with them, okay, this is how this has happened. You're, you're negative now. Can we do something um, to try to prevent you from becoming positive? And there it's a mixture of injection, drug sharing and sexual uh, uh, exposures and, and had some limited success with that. But it's really been uh, difficult uh, to have a systematic approach across uh, uh, across these groups because of their difficulty in remaining engaged in care for a variety of uh, socioeconomic reasons. Um, and and that, I think that's true in Vancouver. There have been some uh, pilot projects that have, have been successful. So, um, you know, we're trying these things with linked with methadone treatment, for example, um, but uh, they're all in small pilots, as far as I'm aware, and no systematic uh, approach that's really been in place. Yeah, so, I mean, what do you do in San or Susan, you were going to, it's like you were going to say, what do you do in uh, San Francisco? Um, you know, I think that we're, we're struggling with this issue. Um, I think if we can uh, try to incorporate this with other substance use services, that that's really the best way that we can uh, get services out to this population. But it's been um, really challenging. So we're, we're really starting to try to incorporate um, PrEP services in with syringe access services, in with, uh, you know, naloxone related services. We're, we're going to be trying a variety of different things and we'll see what, what actually sticks. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Jaime, you want to add anything to that? No, I think um, co-localization with current services, I, I've been really thinking about, you know, uh, the role of uh, integrating PrEP within safe con consumption sites as those roll out and what, um, you know, benefit that might have, um, sort of really meeting people where they are to support their prevention needs. Yeah, well, that's certainly in DC, what we've been trying to do is uh, uh, meet people where they are and co-localize, but I think we're probably just following the uh, lead of what you've done in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Uh, but uh, Rafi, any, you want to make a final comment on that? No, um, I, I certainly think um, uh, one-stop shopping or co-localization of services is the only way this is going to be successful. Um, I think many on this call or in the audience are aware that there's an increasing interest in mobile vans to try and deliver substance use treatment services and either um, HIV treatment um, or HIV biomedical prevention services in a one-stop but moving um, location, and that's being evaluated in, in a study that the HIV Prevention Trials Network is currently sponsoring. But I, I think we're all struggling to figure out, as Susan said, what's going to stick um, uh, in, 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 uh, in people with substance use um, uh, disorders or, 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 or specifically injection drug use behaviors. It's, it's challenging, and I don't think we've figured out what the, the right answer is yet. Mm -hmm. Well, I think yeah, this looks like uh, the end of uh, the questions, at least that uh, I can see in the Q&A. But I think this is one of the questions I hope that the registrants will answer for Don Jacobson and her staff is what you think of this focus uh, with an entire symposium on PrEP. Because I think this has been very valuable in terms of looking at this comprehensively. It's clearly something that uh, needs much more focus. And I would hope that ISUSA would want to do this at least once a year uh, to get this group together and to readdress this because I think we've seen a lot of really fascinating new scientific approaches of drugs and long-acting uh, approaches. Uh, we've seen um, a lot of innovative models to personalize this to different patient populations. Um, Jeff has talked to us about uh, how policy is going to change. I think that's something we all need to know about. And actually, some of the behavioral issues, I guess we all were particularly uh, enamored with what Hyman had to say about uh, uh, how uh, you might define monogamy. Uh, that's something that's going to stick with me. Uh, but uh, I think everybody had sort of a different perspective. So I think it's been great that everybody shared their experience. And it's exciting to see how many different uh, opportunities there are. But since Mike Sag isn't here to have the last word, Donna, you always have the last word. So uh, do you have the last word for uh, either the faculty or the registrants? Unfortunately, Donna had to leave the call already, but I, we do have the closing slides that I will put up. And if anybody has any last minute comments, thank you so much for this amazing course. Okay, well, good. And again, ISUSA staff uh, um, has really done a wonderful job putting this together. Because again, the uncertainty of knowing whether we're even live or only virtual uh, uh, required a lot of flexibility, but uh, uh, Stephanie and Michelle uh, and uh, the rest of the staff have really done a terrific job. So uh, uh, is there anything, uh, Stephanie, you want me to say uh, to uh, end this?